Thank you very much, uh, Harlan. Hi, everybody. My name is Harold. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Harold. Uh, by the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, I, I asked myself, what was I doing in Little Rock, Arkansas, when I was starting out there? I got a phone call from Tom Jasmine. You're right. Um, I'm not Tom, but Charlie told me we were the same color, so it's all okay. It's a, I mean, we got the colors right anyhow. <laughs> But uh, I, I I came in last night and 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 Wayne his lovely wife picked me up at the airport and I don't know Little Rock but all of a sudden I see us going through back alleys and down our way and, and around warehouses and I said wait a minute now I know I thought Little Rock had changed <laughs> then they took us out down to the Cajun and we go back through some more dark alleys and around the back I said wait a minute here Wayne <laughs> I don't know. But but I have had a beautiful time. It, it's always it's always a pleasure for me to be around AA people, anytime, anywhere. Uh, but I had the privilege of spending the, the whole day and 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 watch AA at work. I saw AA function here today, and it was beautiful to watch. Um, to see the DCMs giving their report, enthusiastically talking about what they've done in their district, and how their districts are growing, and how the people are are moving ahead and carrying the message out in out into the areas. It's, it's, it's beautiful to watch. You know, we're up in New York, and very often we get kind of jaded and cynical about what really happens out here. And I know I travel around a great deal, and it's it's beautiful to watch AA at work, regardless of what we do up there. Um, Gordon Patrick, the chairman of the, the trustees' board of directors, describes AA as an inverted triangle. And, and the broad end of the triangle is the fellowship, where all the people are, where all you are. And down at the bottom of the point is Gordon, and that's where he belongs. <clears throat> and that's where we belong, because what happens out there happens up on top, and it comes down, not the other way around. And that's the way it should be. And, and we did give Wayne a lot of humility today, and I, I, I have to agree, we needle him an awful lot. We made him an honorary New Yorker so he could walk around. As a, as a matter of fact, last last conference, I made a motion that they extend the time allotted to the trustees to talk so he could talk. He talked kind of slow. He need, need a little more time. So we gave him a little more time so he could he could get everything out there. But but seriously, Wayne has has admirably represented you in New York. I want to say that sincerely. When I came onto the board. He was helpful to me. He supported me. He gave me a lot of direction. And, and I mean to say here and publicly that he's a credit to AA, a credit to Arkansas, and you ought to be real proud of him. <laughs> I, uh, I, I guess when, when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I was like a lot of people. I didn't know what was going on. I really, I really didn't set out to be an alcoholic. It really wasn't my goal in life. <clears throat> I didn't really know what an alcoholic was. I remember early on, my sponsor used to tell a story about how you could tell an alcoholic. He said, the alcoholic, he'll walk past a saloon and there'll be a sign in the window, all you could drink for a dollar. And the alcoholic will walk up, walk right up to the bartender and say, give me two dollars worth. <laughs> that's, that's the alcoholic. <laughs> 
and and right away I knew I was here. I was I was home because I found nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I grew up in New York. I was born and raised in New York, and I grew up on the east side, what they call Spanish Harlem. Spanish Harlem is a section of New York where you grow up very quickly or you stand a good chance of not growing up at all. <laughs> so I learned very early on what was going on out in the street. And and for me, I didn't know what words like honesty and integrity or responsibility, those were alien words to me. I didn't I didn't really understand what they were. Because in my neighborhood the only thing you trusted what was in your pocket. And that was the philosophy you lived by. And I learned how to get over one day at a time a long time ago. <laughs> because that's how we live. You know, I come from a poor neighborhood, but we didn't know we were poor. You know, everybody in the neighborhood was exactly the same as us. It wasn't until I got out of there that I realized how poor we were. And so I went, I went through my whole life just finding out ways to get around doing things the easy way. Whenever I started out to do something, it was always the hard way. We used to have trolley cars. I don't know if you've ever seen a trolley car here in, in Arkansas. In any event, uh, it, it's a funny kind of gadget that runs on tracks and it wanders around. They don't have too many of them left. They got some in San Francisco now on the scene. But when I was a kid, we used to hop on the trolley cars and get free rides. Well, all the kids used to hop on the back, and I'd hop on the front. Uh, right away, that should have told me something. <clears throat> There was something wrong. They say hindsight is an exact science. And I knew years ago there was something wrong with me. But I went along my life. And, and as a young kid, um, in growing up in Harlem, you learn how to take care of yourself. And I had a natural talent. I knew how to fight. And I started boxing early. And it sort of kept me out of a lot of trouble because I was athletic and I didn't get involved with, with alcohol or anything else for a long time. But then along about the 50s, the Korean War broke out. And in typical alcoholic fashion, I feel, felt like I knew how to beat the draft. I joined the National Guard. And they instantly got federalized. I joined one of the oldest National Guard units in the United States, the old 369th, one of the oldest black organizations in the United States. That organization had been around since the Spanish-American War. And when I joined it, I met guys that had been drinking since the Spanish-American War. <laughs> and I had been around the streets for a long time. And I knew my way around. And I was going to show these old-timers how to drink. And that's what I proceeded to do. I started to drink with the old-timers in the 369th. And from that point on, I was off and running. The early part of, of the 50s... <clears throat> The unit got activated, and they went went up to um, Fort Devens up in Massachusetts. And I had been pretty good in high school in electronics and, and electrical uh, theory. I had gotten a um, diploma in electrical technology in high school, so I understood physics and that kind of thing. So I took a test, and I passed it, and they sent me down to a school down in El Paso, Texas, the Army Air Defense School, and it's right on the border of Juarez. I don't know if anybody's been down in that part of the country. At that time, you could walk across the bridge. I think it cost a penny to go across. But they used to sell a drink in Juarez called Oso Negro Gin, Black Bear Gin. It was 44 cents a quart. And I remember, as a corporal in those days, 
making $121 a month, you could drink a lot of Oso Negro come payday. And I guess that's where, where my, my, my real escapade as an alcoholic began. Um, I don't know, I guess alcoholics, we have, we have a, we have an honest gift. We can get into some of the damnedest things and get out of them. I mean, and get out of them and never really understand how we got into them in the first place. But the fact that we got away with them just blocked everything else out. And that started with me. I got into trouble from the first time I got down in Juarez. I was walking down the street with a friend of mine and I breaking rum bottles on the lamppost. Now, that will get the attention of the Mexican police. And they take a very dim view of that. And we wound up in a Mexican jail. And I remember as a kid, we used to go to the movies and you'd see pictures of Earl Flynn. And they would be in those Spanish dungeons with chains and things on the wall. I used to think that was make-believe until I got into a Spanish jail. <laughs> and I've been in jails all over the country. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever seen a jail like a Mexican jail. Uh, I, I remember once, and I haven't, I've been waiting to hear somebody. They say you'll hear your story in AA eventually. I haven't heard this. I was asked to leave jail once. <clears throat> they, they asked me to leave. I was up in a little town, upstate New York, in Monticello, New York, and you can't you can't drink in the street. If they catch you with an open body, you get locked up. And I was sitting on the curb drinking this pint of wine, and and the cop came by and locked me right up, and they put me into a, shell, a cell, and I, I lit a cigarette and laid down and fell asleep. And the mattress caught on fire. And they took me out of the, out of that cell, put me into another one. I laid down and did exactly the same thing. Fell asleep, the mattress caught on fire. This is a brand new jail. They had just built it. The officer came and they said, look, I'm sorry, but you have to leave. We don't have no more. I haven't heard nobody say that yet. <clears throat> but, um, we, down in, 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 in El Paso, um, when I got out of that jail, uh, that, that was the kind of, kind of escapade that I would get into. And, and the problem, and I think it's legion with alcoholics. My CO came, he was a fight fan, and I was boxing in a couple of days, and he got me out of jail. And that was the story. Every time I'd get into something, somebody'd get me out of it. They'd get me out of it, and I never realized or even think a lot about how I got into it. And I think that's the tragedy of the alcoholic. We never see how we really are. We never see the things that we are. Other people see it. Other people see it very quickly. I remember many times now, I'd be sitting in a bar looking in the mirror, and I'd see this suave, debonair guy sitting back, looking back at me, and my flies open. <clears throat> that's, that's the image that I had of me. But we don't see that. The other people see that, and we just go right along our merry way, and 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 we think everything is fine, <clears throat> and that's what happened to me. I left I left Texas. Uh, I, I, I got sent out of Texas. Fact of the matter is, and and um, I came back and um, it was I guess the the early part of the fifties, and I got a job working for the army. It's never been the same since. I went to work for the army, <clears throat> and um. I was working in, as a as a guided missile technician in their track and track section, and they sent me down to an alcoholic paradise. I mean, absolutely alcoholic paradise. They sent me down to Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. 
Now, those of you that have been down to that part of Alabama, it's a dry county. But I had an apartment right next door to a dentist who had his own still. <laughs> he had his own still and ran off his own corn liquor. Needless to say, I didn't have to worry about drinking in Huntsville at all. And I got into trouble down there, just like I did everywhere else. Uh, I remember down in Huntsville, out on the post at Redstone, they used to have what they call Paul Richard's Wednesday. And you could go out on the post and you could get a whole steak dinner for about a dollar and a quarter. And, and liquor was 25 cents a shot. And I was out there and I got pretty well tanked up that night. And I was on my way back from the post into Huntsville. And all of a sudden, my alcohol told me to go back out there. And I made this fantastic U-turn down. And those back roads are not supposed to make U-turns. They got jug handles that you go around. And so I did all the alcoholic things, checked the mirror and looked all around. Nobody in sight. I made this fantastic U-turn. Now, I thought about this for years afterwards. And as near as I could figure out, they had to be in the trunk of my car. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only way they could have got there that fast. <laughs> the minute I made that turn with the flashing red light, there they were, two six foot six Alabama state troopers. Now, you talk about the insanity of alcoholism, right? I've been in law enforcement for a good part of my life. It is it is absolutely insane to argue with Alabama state troopers, to argue with state troopers at any time. But for me to argue with them in Alabama is insane. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> the, the crazy part of it, like the typical alcoholic that I was, I got out of it. I talked my way right out of it. And went along, and, and they said, just let this one go. <laughs> just get him out of here. And I got away with it, like I did everything else, not realizing that down the road it was going to catch up to me, not knowing it, not seeing it. None of it was there. I was young in those days and healthy and strong, and I could drink and get rid of it. It never bothered me. And so those kinds of things would happen. It tracked me all the way. But I came back from Huntsville, and I got back to the, to um to Staten Island. I had had come back to Staten Island, and I was living in Staten Island at the time, and um, I decided to get married. Another typical alcoholic thing, because I got married because my brother got married. <laughs> the only reason I got married, all the gang was breaking up. I married a beautiful person, a, a beautiful woman, and, and we got married and proceeded to raise a family, and then I think that the little warning signs started to crop up here and there. Because I realized all of a sudden that I was working and I never had any money. And it wasn't, it didn't occur to me. I didn't make the connection because I had a good job. I had left the Department of the Army and I had gone to work in a New York City court system. And in those days, they paid very good money. And, and I was making good money and I was married. By this time, I had two small children and I never seemed to have any money. Um, and, and, and all of a sudden, I would see myself coming up in the morning and, and my hands would shake and I'd need a drink. Um, pretty soon I worked in, in, uh, in the civil court in Staten Island in the, in the beginning. I worked in the criminal courts afterwards. And I realized that, uh, in order for me to get through the day, I'd have to have a drink in the morning. And so I started to stop off in the bar on my way to work and I'd have a drink there. And pretty soon that progressed where I took a bottle and I stuck it in my desk drawer. 
Now, I don't know if anybody knows anything about the New York City court system, but it is an alcoholic paradise for anybody that works there. I used to work with a judge that used to have his own Scotch liquor imported from Scotland with his name on it. And I'd be working with the judge on the bench, and we would come out typical days in, in, in our court would be we I I bring the judge out on the bench and I I call the calendar and then we take a break. And we go back in, <laughs> and we go back in his chambers and we proceed to drink for about a half hour and we come back out on the bench and I'd have a second call. And then we take another break. <clears throat> and we go back inside, have another drink. About a half hour later we come back out and go to lunch. Now all the time the prisoners are downstairs in the pen. We get back from lunch sometimes three or four o'clock in the afternoon and send them all back to Rackers Island. And the next day we start off the whole whole thing all over again. So that my drinking in court never really bothered anybody because they were as drunk as I was. <laughs> and this went on all the time. All the time. But pretty soon <clears throat> this this uh uh financial house of cards began to catch up to me. I owed everybody. I, I had borrowed money from First National Bank and from Citibank and from Westchester Bank and I went to to, to uh uh the fi- beneficial finance agency and I was gonna get one loan one loan and pay off all the other loans. And they gave me the money. <laughs> they, they actually gave me the money. Naturally I stopped off to discuss the matter with my financial manager, the bartender. And I didn't pay anything. Pretty soon it started to catch up to me. I, 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 I couldn't pay the bills. The bills weren't being paid. My wife was complaining. Everybody was complaining. And I was thinking to myself, well, if I could just get out of this, if I could just get away from this for a little while, everything would straighten itself out. Somehow somebody would wave a magic wand and all this would go away and everything would be okay. So I moved out. I moved out of my house and I had a, had a good home had a good wife, and I had two lovely children. And I moved out, and I moved into one room. And I don't know if you've seen this the, the poster that's around some of the rooms where there's an alcoholic sitting on the side of the bed, and two AA members are there trying to talk to him. That was me. I moved out into one room with a broken light bulb dangling from the ceiling to get peace of mind. And all the time, the alcoholic mentality was still going. Because I would wander around the street, with a certain time, by this time I had lost my job, had nowhere to work, and I walk around the street like I still work, like I still was in the court. And I walk around, see some people that I know, maybe bum a few bucks and go back to the room. Finally, I couldn't even afford the room, and I wound up out in the street. And then it was easy. I didn't have to pretend I was a big shot anymore, I was a drunk. And it was easy, and I wandered all around Staten Island in those days. <clears throat> panhandling, stealing, robbing, doing whatever I had to do to get a drink one day at a time. And it's strange because I had a family that I could go to, but because of the alcoholic pride and and the alcoholic ego, I wouldn't go there. I would rather stay out. I remember once I was in a I was in a dingy basement on a dirt floor. And I had been there a couple of days and I hadn't bathed or shaved or done anything. And I woke up and I was in, in one of those moments that we get where you're not really drunk and you're not really sober and you have that, that little moment, that, that crystal moment of clarity and you look at yourself. And I asked myself, what are you doing here? What are you doing in this basement on this dirt floor? And I couldn't answer. 
I had a good family. I had a reasonably good education. I had no answer. So I did like I always did when I was in the jail. I was going to pray to God. The way I prayed to God was, you made a deal. You do this for me, I do this for you. Nothing happened. And I stayed exactly where I was. I'll never forget that basement because every time the boiler would fire, I was hallucinating and I would hear Handel's Messiah. I'd hear the whole hallelujah chorus. I can't stand the thing today. <laughs> but I stayed right there. Stayed right in that basement. And I wandered around in the dirt. I don't know how I managed to do it, but I had driven a truck for years and I finally I had gotten a job running dumps back and forth in Staten Island. And um I had I had come back from uh running a load out on the end of the island on my way back to the yard, I blacked out. And I almost ran the kid uh the truck down an embankment out into the to the kill there. And nothing really happened. The cops came and they got the truck back up the thing. But they said you ought to go and have an x-ray and make sure everything is all right. So I went down and had an x-ray an x-ray and thought no more about it. Next morning, <clears throat> I was sitting around with a group of group of colleagues. We had just gotten a bottle. I had tipped in on it. I was not about to leave it. And I got a phone call that said that I had to come down to the hospital right away. And um, I, I really didn't want to leave. Now this was a this was a perfectly good bottle that just had appeared, and part of my money was in it. But the woman said that if I didn't come down, they'd send somebody out for me. I didn't know what it was all about, but I really didn't want to get hassled. So I went down, and not to make a long story longer, I had tuberculosis. <laughs> and I had tuberculosis so badly that they were taking bets whether or not I'd last out the week. All the time, I thought I just had a bad cold. But my lungs were so perforated that I couldn't breathe. And they had me in oxygen for about a week. Finally, I came out of it. And little by little by little, I began to clear up a little bit. And and as I said before, hindsight is an exact science. Some say it's 20-20 vision. Because I realized today that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. You might say that's, that's strange to say getting a serious disease like tuberculosis is a good thing. But for me, it was. Because I had to lay out in that hospital for almost a year and a half. And for that year and a half... I had an opportunity to look back and check directly. And I realized laying in the hospital in Staten Island that there was something wrong. There was something wrong. As I looked back over my life, I saw that every single time I got into any kind of difficulty, whether it was getting locked up, going to jail, getting into a fight, anything, anytime anything bad happened to me, I was either drinking or I was drunk. And I think laying in the hospital in that ward, the cement block up here lifted and the message went through that there's something wrong with you and it has to do with alcohol. Now, no no great bolts of lightning came down. I didn't see any great flashes of light or anything like that. But something in the back of my mind said to me, you can't go back out there. If you go back out in the street again, you're going to be right back where you were. I felt safe and I felt protected in the hospital. And I knew in my heart that if I went back out into the street again, I'd wind up where I was or worse. They say there are no coincidences in AA. It's just God's way of remaining anonymous, and I believe that. Because it turns out 
that the supervising nurse on my ward was in the fellowship. And I remember when I was supposed to be discharged. And I told her, I said, Martha, I don't want to go back out there. I'm afraid. And she asked me why. And I told her. I told her honestly what was what was, what I was afraid of. And she asked me, did I really want some help? And for the first time in my life, I was honest enough and truthful enough with myself and with another human being to say, yes, I need some help. And she got me to my first meeting. She got me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I met my sponsor that same night. God bless him. He died two years ago. He was sober for 27 years. And the first thing he said to me, he said, you don't ever have to sober up again. Not ever again. And I didn't believe him. He showed me a book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, every answer that you need is in this book. And I said, yeah, maybe I can figure out how to get along. <laughs> so I started reading that book right away. Read that book from cover to cover and came back. There's no way I can get a loan out of this book. I told him. He says, it is. You can get anything you want out of that book if you follow what it says in there. And so I began that miraculous walk that we all know about. I started to follow the principles of the fellowship. I began to experience what they were talking about. And I had been around the program for a while, and I felt pretty good physically. And I and, and, and I could see things going along, but they weren't really going fast enough for me. You know how we are. You know how we alcoholics are. <laughs> I, I like the story my good friend tells about this guy is driving a truck down the road and every every few blocks he stops the truck, he gets the broom and he runs around the back and he smacks the back of the truck. He gets back in the truck and he drives a few more blocks and he gets out, runs around the back and he smacks the truck with the broom again. Gets back in the truck, drives a few more blocks. There's a guy behind him watching all this. And finally, he drives up alongside of him and he says, what in the world are you doing? And the driver said, you see this truck? It weighs 2,000 pounds. He said, I got 4,000 pounds of canaries on here. I got to keep 2,000 pounds of canaries in the air all the time. <laughs> That's the alcoholic. That's us. <laughs> That's us running twice as fast to stay exactly where we are. <laughs> so it wasn't coming fast enough. So he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. He said, you see that? See those 12 steps? He said, we're going to start to take a walk down those 12 steps. And I'm going to show you what we're talking about. So he led me through the steps, step by step by step. And little by little, the veil is lifted, and, and the shadows begin to go away. And I begin to see a little clearly. I realized something that Charlie said this morning. The first step tells us what the problem is. The second step gives us the solution. And if we practice the third to the eleventh step, we get the message. We get the light, and we see the truth. The one thing, the dilemma of the alcoholic is, is that we are powerless. We are powerless, and we don't like being powerless. I don't like being powerless, but he told me there is power here. All we have to do is take it. I once heard a guy said, nobody can give you power. Power is something that you have to take, and power is in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for those of us who care to have it. All we have to do is look out and take it. 
I found that I had a hole right inside here. My sponsor said, that's a spiritual hole. It's a spiritual hole. You have to fill that hole up with something spiritual. And I began to understand what he meant by a higher power. You don't have to do the things that alcoholics used to do anymore. You don't have to lie and cheat and steal and do all those things that you thought you had to do just to survive. You don't have to do any of those things anymore. You don't have to sober up ever again. And he told me the story about the alcoholic who would go down the hallway, and at the end of the hallway, he'd see two doors. And on one side, there would be happiness and a good life, and the other side is a guy with a baseball bat. And the alcoholic would open the door, and he'd go inside, and get hit in the head with the baseball bat. And he'd come back out the door, go back down the hallway, turn around, back up the hallway, same two doors, happiness and good life, and the guy with the bat, and he'd go right inside with the guy with the bat, get hit right in the head again. Come back out, back down the hallway, turn around, get halfway up the hallway and say, maybe he won't be in there this time. (laughs) Maybe I can get away with it. And he'd go in there and he'd open up the door and the guy with the baseball bat would be gone and the alcoholic would go looking for him. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. He said, you can take this life that we have here and use it for yourself. Take it for yourself. Take it and use it. It's a gift that we have. He said, the one thing that I want you to do, as long as you're a member of this fellowship, is remember where it came from. Remember how you got it. And pass it on. Pass it on the way you got it. Give it back to the guy or the gal that's coming in the door behind you. So that you know that you've given it to them the same as you got it. So they can give it to the person behind them the way they got it. And on and on and on. He he, he, he likened this to... to uh, uh, there's a star out there, Alpha Centaurus. It's a hundred million light years away. It takes 300 years in a rocket ship just to get there. And if you put a bunch of people in a rocket ship and you shot them out there at the Alpha Centaurus, the first, first 50 years would be fine. But if they didn't keep telling generation after generation after generation who they were, where they had come from, By the time they got out to that star, they'd just be a bunch of people floating out in space not knowing who they were or where they came from. And that's what we have to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember reading in the book, Pass It On, a woman came up after Bill had had given a talk and she just gushed all over Bill and and just said how how wonderful Alcoholics Anonymous was and how much it had done for her. and, and, and how she was so everlastingly grateful. And Bill just looked down at her and said, pass it on. Pass it on. And I guess that's the message. Because from that point on, I learned the value of service. And what service can do to enhance my individual sobriety. I learned early on the way for me to give it, to keep it, is to give it away. To give it away. We do that to some extent whenever we show up at an AA meeting. 
we do that when we talk to newcomers. But to be able to give service, to help the structure grow, to make a place for Alcoholics Anonymous where everybody can fit and have a place and feel comfortable is the real life of service. It was so beautiful to watch service at work this afternoon, listening to, to this beautiful assembly at work, AA at work, this miracle at work, this, this gift that we have to see that magic at work. We've all seen the alcoholic come into the room, dejected and hurt, full of despair and hopelessness, and then watch that transformation come over and watch that person grow and see the light come into their eyes and, and, and the clearness come up and the love and the sharing that goes on to help that person grow. And we know that that's not for many of our doing. There's a divine power here that works through us. And we do the work, but we're told what to do. We're shown how to do it. And we pass that message on. And that's what we've been doing. And that's what service is about. Service is helping Alcoholics Anonymous maintain those three legacies that we have. That, that recovery that we need so much. That unity that we need so much. And the, the hand of AA should always be there. And for that, I always want to be responsible. So that whenever the hand of anybody reaches out to Alcoholics Anonymous, I want to be there. I want my hand to be out. I want to be able to reach out. And for that, I am responsible. I think that for me, the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is one message of love and sharing. I have learned love. You taught me love. You taught me how to let you love me until I could learn how to love myself. You taught me how to give love to somebody else and to receive love. It, 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 it gave me the ability to say to a man that I love you and not feel ashamed about it. I can love my fellow man today and have no misgivings about it. It taught me all the things that I need to know to be a human being today. To be able to look into a mirror and not be ashamed of what I see. To be able to be an example to my children. As I began to grow up in Alcoholics Anonymous, things didn't get better for me right away. They weren't. I don't want to mislead anybody in here. I never found out how to get a loan out of the big book. <laughs> I looked. I read that book from cover to cover and never said a word about where to go for a loan. But it told me how to live. It told me what to do. It says right in the fifth chapter, we just read it here, rarely has anybody failed who has thoroughly followed in their footsteps. It's only those persons who are constitutionally incapable of becoming honest with themselves, and there are such unfortunates. I read some interesting statistics. Seventy-five percent of all the people who come to Alcoholics Anonymous get sober the first time they walk through the door. The first time they come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they get sober. There's another fifteen percent that come in and out, come in and out, and at some point, they get sober. And then there is that other 10%, the 10% that the fifth chapter talks about, those people who are incapable of becoming honest with themselves, and they don't make this program. But think about that. 90% of all the people that come to Alcoholics Anonymous get sober and stay sober. That's awesome. 
that's awesome when you think about the disease and what it does to a person. How it leaves the person hopeless, full of despair, to come in here and take hold and grow. Anybody ever had to go to a social agency? I did. Go to a social agency and ask for help. Go to welfare, social security, and you sit down and you fill out forms and you get interviewed and you talk to people and you may down the road somewhere get some help if you're lucky. You walk into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and instantly you have a million people who want nothing else to do but help you get sober. And the price is right. Doesn't cost a dime. That's awesome. That's the power that they're talking about in these rooms. That's the power to turn around the world. And that's what we have here. I believe when they say we are chosen people, I believe that. And I don't believe that in an elitist kind of way. I believe that we are here for a purpose. I believe God chose us to show the way. God always picked the least of them to help the others. And he picked the alcoholic, who is truly the least of them, to help the others. And he gave us the gift that nobody else has. He gave us that mystical cord of grace that common bond, the thing that we share that makes us all the same, regardless of race, creed, color, or or station in life. We have that mystical cord that binds us together that we can share with one alcoholic to another. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can do that. Anybody can give you an idea. Somebody gives me an idea, I may thank them. If I can make some money out of it, I'll thank them more. But if I give you my experience, if I share my experience with you, that's valuable. If I tell you what happened to me and what I did about it, that's valuable. Nobody else can do that. There are not a lot of people in the world today who can say unequivocally and without any question who they are. And I can say who I am. I'm an alcoholic, and I know what that is. It gives me the parameters. It gives me the guidelines. It tells me what our capabilities are and what I can't do. That's the kind of head start that nobody can ever have if you're not an alcoholic, practicing in the fellowship. And that gives us a leg up on everybody. So for me, the message is carry the message. Pass it on. Give it to the next person down the road. And I think that, for me, this this assembly here today, watching these beautiful people in, in this little rock, Arkansas, this little sort of microcosm of Alcoholics Anonymous, watching you share and love each other and help each other and, and just, just have a good time being together is what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. I've had the, the privilege of talking to Lois, Bill's wife, on many occasions. And she told me the story, and she relates it every year at his anniversary dinner, which is coming up in November. She tells the story about when Bill went to re- meet with some, some alcoholics, uh, some Arabian alcoholics, and, and, and they had a meeting in Saudi Arabia. And, and when they closed their meeting, they say in Arabic, we salute you, and we thank you for your life. And Lois explained to me what they were saying. 
the Arabs were telling Bill that because he came to them and he brought the message and he shared with them, he saved their lives. So they thanked him for his life. So that his life was able to come to them and save their life. So they said, we salute you and we thank you for your life. And that's how I feel about Alcoholics Anonymous whenever I'm in a group of Alcoholics Anonymous. Whenever I'm in a group with other AAs. And we're like one family. We have our little squabbles and we have our little differences. Nobody is perfect. I know I'm not. I, uh, I remember <coughs> when, um, uh, at, at AAWS World Service one time, there was a group down in Australia. They wanted to start a group of sexaholic anonymous. People who were progressively sexual. Wayne wanted to go down and get them started, but we said, we said, we, we said, we said, nah, we better not do that. <laughs> but we, we, we share our program with everybody. We give our program to everybody so that they can take these beautiful concepts that Bill had, had given us and left with us to everybody to use and share and hold on to. I remember hearing, I talked to a guy up in Yukon, British Columbia, just recently. And he was saying that when Bill sat down to write the 12 steps, when he sat down, he had what he called six kernels of truth. And he wanted to break those up into some manageable sizes, and into little bite-sized pieces so, so even the least of them, like me, could understand them. But he got a block. He got a writer's block, and nothing would come out. He just couldn't get started. And he prayed, and he said, God, give me the strength. And he said... It was as if the pen began to write by itself. And he wrote the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Never realizing at that time the effect that it was going to have on generation after generation after generation. I don't really believe that Bill Wilson knew the power he was putting down when he sat down with the 12 steps and then the 12 traditions and then the 12 concepts. I don't think he really knew that. What I think he did know, that there was a power here that could direct him, that could do for him what he couldn't do for himself. And he let that power work through him. And I think that was what the charismatic, charismatic effect that Bill had on people. They, they, they could feel that power in Bill. They, they knew that he was a, being directly motivated, that there was a force and a power behind him. And everywhere he went, that force and that power came off, and he gave it away. Everywhere he went, he gave it away. And that's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. We must give it away. We have to pass it on. You pass it on today. I'm passing it on tonight. Colin and all the other people, Wayne <clears throat> and their past delegates and trusteeships, will continue to pass it on. And that's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. We share with each other, we help each other, and we don't try to be perfect. We try to carry the message the way we got it. So to everybody in Arkansas, to everybody here in Little Rock, I want to do like the Arabs did. I want to thank you for your life, because without your life, I would have no life. I would have nothing. I would still be like I was a while back, running twice as fast to stay exactly where I was. So I do. I salute you. And I thank you for your life. Thank you.